This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. We like to explore mysteries on this program, and uh, I don't think there's been a more serious mystery that has piqued the curiosity of people all over the world, literally, and especially New Yorkers, than uh, the TWA Flight 800 disaster. We're going to get into it with uh, Jack Cashel coming up in about 20 minutes. I've been to the memorial out in Suffolk County. It's still uh, incredibly breathtaking. To see all those flags of all those countries of people that died in that airplane, it's very, very sad. We're going to get into it with Jack Cashel. Of much less serious concern is another interesting mystery. It was written about in the New York Post yesterday or today. I don't know what day it was in print. I don't know if it's in print. I think it's in print today. So I read this article yesterday. My wife brought this to my attention. People across the country have been receiving mysterious empty packages in the mail. And experts are blaming, of all things, shenanigans by third-party merchants on Amazon. This is what the New York Post is reporting. A flurry of yellow padded envelopes have landed in residential mailbox across more than 30 states over the last several weeks. That's according to Safely HQ, the consumer reporting website's founder estimates the mystery packages could number as high as 10,000. While recipients mainly have been puzzled, some have expressed alarm, fretting that their names and addresses may have been leaked in a data breach. Some have braced for the worst, speculating that the apparently empty packages might contain something sinister and invisible. Quote, I got outside and ripped the top of the package open and held it away from my face and pinched it open to see no contents inside. One rattled recipient in Florida wrote on this website, Safely HQ, I left it outside and I'm about to dispose of it in the trash receptacle. Many of the empty packages have listed the sender as an online seller at the address of an Amazon warehouse facility. In several cases, 188 South Mountain House Parkway in San Francisco Bay, area suburb of Tracy, California. By the way, I'm going to read you more of this in a second, but I'm curious if anyone has gotten one of these. Uh, I certainly have not, but if you have, whether you know what it is or not, I'd be curious to hear from you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. While that is the address of a legitimate Amazon facility, the packages in question were not mailed from them. That's what Amazon representatives told the New York Post. Instead, Amazon officials suggested that the situation had all the hallmarks of a known scam called brushing. This has nothing to do with teeth. In which third-party merchants create fake transactions on the site, complete with tracking numbers and confirmations that the packages have been received. Now, you ask yourself, why would they do that? 
What's the benefit to these third-party sellers of creating these fake transactions? Well, after spending a modest outlay on these phantom mailers, maybe $3 or $4 each, the rogue sellers then create phony customer reviews for little-known products that they're trying to sell. That's according to James Thompson, a former Amazon executive who is now a consultant to online sellers. Uh, Isn't that bizarre? Quote, if you confirm that the package addressed to you wasn't ordered by you or anyone you know, report the package online by going to the report unwanted package form. That's the word from uh, Amazon spokesman Sam Stevenson. Amazon investigates these reports and takes action when we find bad actors that violate our policies. According to FakeSpot, a service that detects fake reviews, about 42% of Amazon reviews were not written by actual customers. Isn't that interesting? My wife told me before she orders anything from Amazon, she always checks the reviews. And she was, uh, she says you can usually tell the fake reviews, but even she, who's a pretty good consumer with this stuff, she had no idea it was high as 42% of reviews not written by actual customers. The federal government has expressed some concerns about the growing number of fake reviews on all these e-commerce sites, with the Federal Trade Commission vowing to fine Amazon and others if they don't remove them. So in February, a former Amazon consultant was actually sentenced to 10 months in prison and a $50,000 fine for participating in a scheme to bribe Amazon employees and manipulate the company's third-party marketplace. The case is ongoing, and five other defendants are still facing prosecution. So signs of the tactic are reemerging as Amazon sellers gear up for the holiday shopping season, jockeying for the highest placement on the marketplace. And after Amazon clamped down on bad actors who submitted fake shipping data earlier this summer, um, recipients likely ended up on the list as past customers of the seller. It's also possible the the seller simply chose their names and addresses randomly from public records. In some cases, Amazon insiders may have sold Amazon customer information to sellers. For those who receive packages they didn't order, the Better Business Bureau advises they change their online account passwords and keep a close eye on credit card statements and credit reports as it's possible their personal information has been compromised. So I guess, and maybe I'm missing something here. If you can explain this to me, please call in, 800-848-9222. I guess what they do is they send something in the mail, and all told the cost of this sending this parcel is only 3 or $4. It's empty, so it doesn't cost that much to sell. And then because they've confirmed that the parcel was shipped, someone can then enter a fake review onto Amazon for a product that that third-party seller sells. I guess that's how the scam works, um, unless I'm missing something here. So if you know anything about this or if you've been the recipient of one of these envelopes, give me a call, 800-848-9222. It's called brushing. Two years ago, a suspected brushing scam caught the attention of the Department of Agriculture. I remember this. I remember this. After people received mysterious packages of seeds in the mail, 
that appeared to be from China. I was thinking of doing that, actually. I was thinking, you know, China keeps doing all these nefarious things. And I was thinking maybe we should get some invasive seeds and just start mailing them all over China. Uh, But I figured it's bad karma to do that to anybody. So I, I thought ill of it. I'm also wondering if there's some sort of marketing technique that we can use for this radio show in which we can have our listeners mail some propaganda promoting this radio show to people randomly that will help us uh, uh, get some attention. Um, But nothing really came of it. There was a very good um, PR executive who planted a fake Egyptian uh, relic um, in a taxi cab. And when they translated the hieroglyphics on the relic, they it said, everybody's mummy listens to 1010 wins. Mortimer Matz was his name. Mortimer Matz, a famous PR executive back in the, in the 60s, I think, did that. And it worked. It was an incredible amount of publicity. See, we need something like that. We need some sort of guerrilla marketing tactic where, you know, people plant a tree or plant some seeds that get mysteriously mailed to them. And then another side of midnight tree pops up or something, you know, something like that. We need something creative like that, that is minimal effort, minimal cost, but maximum exposure. Like that Mortimer Matz uh, piece. 800-848-9222. A lot of people very patiently holding. Let me say hello to our friend Neil on Staten Island. Hello there, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, I wouldn't be getting uh, too upset about the Heidi Klum thing. Uh, I remember when Brooke Shields did a a new thing for uh, Penthouse. And she she was just a kid. And her mother, you know, let her do it. Uh, that that was upsetting. Well, did uh, I remember there was a lot of controversy about Brooke Shields doing Blue Lagoon? Uh, I didn't realize that she had posed for Penthouse also. But did yeah. Brooke Shields pose with her mom as well? I don't remember. I, I remember the pictures of her. I don't remember. You know what? I think there was a picture of her mom there too. But the mother was clothed. Brooke Shields wasn't clothed. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I didn't. Uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's yeah, also, uh, news to me. Uh, as for the Ambien, one of the side effects is sleepwalking. Because my doctor gave me Ambien, and it's not indicated for long-term use. It's only a short-term uh, use thing. Uh, I said, I'm, I said I wouldn't worry about me sleepwalking. There's no way for me to walk around there. So, um, and it worked for a couple of times, but you know, then I, it didn't it didn't help me at all. And uh, finally, so what happened in your case, Neil? So you tried it, it worked, and then what did it wear off or something? No, you got the overnight show. We have to we have to listen to two all night. I, I sleep like a baby in the when it comes to the morning. That's very funny, Neil. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, to your point, my friend Rich. I probably should have given him a fake name, but he, I don't. I'm not going to use his last name. My friend Rich um, takes some of his wife's Ambien from time to time, and I think they put a stop to this. But my friend Rich would wake up randomly in places. He would sleepwalk. And then wake up in the hallway of their apartment or uh, in their kitchen, lying on the floor. It was very weird, very scary for the two of them. I think that's why they made him stop it. And especially he found if he drank alcohol before taking the Ambien. So I think he's off alcohol and Ambien at the moment. But she would send me photos of, um, you know, and he's a bigger guy. It's tough to move him. So it's, uh, you know, of him waking up in the hallway or being asleep in the hallway randomly. He would take the Sambian, go to sleep, 
and then sleepwalk down the hallway and or in the kitchen. That's why when, when folks like Bernard or others would suggest Ambien to me, it was never something that I ever seriously considered. Uh, 800-848-9222. Before we get to Jack Cashel, let me say hello to Andy in Pennsylvania. Hello, Andy. Hey, Frank. How are you? Great. Thank you. Um, boy, I enjoy listening to your programs. You're so diversified and uh, very intelligent gentleman. We, you must have us confused with some other show, Andy, but thank you. <laughs> Not at all, Frank. Not at all. Hey, is it too late for me to talk to you about the uh, sleeping habits? Absolutely not, Andy. So, so Talk and sleep all you want. Be my guest. <laughs> okay, Frank, let me tell you a, a little brief story about me. I work at night at home, and I deal a lot of business with China. And, of course, you know that they're, uh, our nighttime is their daytime, so I could communicate with them very well. But anyway... Um, I have had a bad habit of only sleeping two or three hours a night. And I told my doctor about that. He prescribed uh, medicine for me. Uh, Do you want me to mention it? If you want, sure. Okay, it's Zimbalta. Zimbalta, okay. uh, And I take uh, one 30-milligram tablet uh, capsule of Zimbalta after dinner which I have at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, Frank, now I sleep six or seven hours every night. All right. Now, you're not a paid Zimbalta spokesman, are you? Not at all, Okay, good, good, good. good. (laughs) Andy, thank you for listening. I'm glad you're sleeping well. Keep in touch. Call again. Uh, Those of you that are holding, we'll try and get to you. Hey, we're going to talk about TWA Flight 800 in just a moment. What happened? We're going to try and find out. We'll at least give you a couple of theories as to what may have happened. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents... This is Frank's Conspiracy Hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is a program where we love to explore the unexplained and dig a little deeper on stories which seem to not make sense to a lot of folks. Now, sometimes there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for why things may not make sense. And sometimes there's just not. In the case of TWA Flight 800... I have heard from so many of you whenever I've raised this on the air that this is a situation that requires a little bit more exposition and needs a little bit more digging. Uh, We are joined this morning by someone who has spent uh, a lot of time and many years and a great deal of effort digging into exactly what happened. Now, if you're a little younger or maybe your memory's a little little hazy as to what happened, it was July 17th, 1996, TWA Flight 800, a Boeing 747, was a scheduled international passenger flight from New York to Rome, Italy, with a stopover in Paris. And then uh, about 12 minutes after taking off from JFK Airport, TWA Flight 800 exploded and then crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. 
Of the 230 passengers and crew on board, no survivors were found, making TWA Flight 800 the second deadliest aircraft accident in the United States at that time. Well, the official story was that it was an accident, probably the result of some sort of a mechanical failure. And uh, a lot of folks have never really embraced that idea, and a lot of alternative theories have been put forward. We're going to evaluate a few of them with Jack Cashel. He's an author, a blogger, the executive editor of Ingram's Magazine, and he has two books about what happened at uh, with respect to TWA Flight 800. The most recent book has been has gotten a lot of attention over the course of the last six years. It's called TWA 800: The Crash, the Cover Up, and the Conspiracy. Jack Cashel, thanks for joining me on the radio. Hey, Frank, thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. So, Jack, uh, what sparked your initial interest in what happened to TWA Flight 800? Were you interested almost immediately, or did you start digging into it a few years later? Actually, it was a few years later, and what happened is I live in Kansas City, and that's the ancestral home of TWA. So there's hundreds of retired people here in active duty. Uh, That is uh, about the year 2000. TWA was still on its last legs. And I went to hear a talk about by this guy named James Sanders and his wife, Elizabeth, who did the original investigation, independent investigation into the crash. And I went out to dinner with him afterwards with a bunch of people. And I was sitting next to Elizabeth Sanders. She had been a trainer for TWA and a flight attendant. Sweetest, nicest, Philippine-American, uh, you know, pretty innocent. And then she's telling me her story and that she and her husband are arrested for conspiracy because Jim, who's an investigative reporter, uh, tried to look into TWA Flight 800. And I'm hearing this story. Well, I mean, I knew about the crash, but I didn't pay much attention. This is four years after the fact. And I can't believe that this is going on. Uh, and so then, you know, I, I, at that time, I was mostly making documentaries. And I, uh, the next morning, I went out to breakfast with the Sanders. And I said, uh, has anyone made a documentary about what you're doing? And they said, no. And I said, listen, I'm not interested in a, uh, like a conspiracy theory. I only, I'm only interested in doing a documentary. If you could prove to me uh, beyond the shadow of doubt that what your thesis is is actually true, then we could talk. And they said, well, come down to Florida where we live. Let's review the material. And then, you know, after you've had a chance to review it, uh, we, can, we can go from there. And so in the interval, I read the two mainstream books on uh, – TWA Flight 800. One was by a CNN reporter named Christine Negroni. Another was an AP reporter named Pat Milton. Both of them totally discounted everything that Sanders said. It was a a fuel tank accident. Uh, The witnesses didn't see anything, blah, blah, blah. So I go to Florida, now very skeptical. And then I start reading uh, what Sanders had accumulated, and that was the eyewitness testimony. Uh, There were 250 people who saw a missile hit that airplane. Mm. Uh, off the coast of Long Island, something like 56 people followed the missile from the surface, watched it ascend, watched it zigzag as it corrected its course, and watched the plane break in half. Uh, and these are people uh, who were, you know, other airline uh, pilots, uh, not airline pilots, pilots, uh, military people, helicopter pilots, people, sophisticated people who knew something about what they were seeing. And then I, you know, as I got into it, I could see how this happened, how. And and at first it blows your mind because you can't believe. Now, 
today we're a little more skeptical of the FBI and you know and the sure. the, uh, the way the government works. But in in the year two thousand two thousand one, I was pretty naive. You know, I I was a phone friend of Ephraim Zimbush Jr., the you know, Mr. FBI. You know, it's like a, I was I was very trusting. My father was a cop, and uh, you know, and I, I'm from that area, so I had certain interest in it, uh, and from the New York area. And as I got into it, though, I I began to see that the real culprit here, uh, you know, the governments, when they screw up, the Navy, when they screw up, they have a history of running and then handing out medals and telling each other to shut up. The government, and, you know, you have a re-election year in 1996 when this happened, had a vested interest in keeping this all quiet. The New York Times had no interest. And the New York Times is the entity that most thoroughly betrayed its mission by participating in this cover-up. Uh, well, well, I want to get back to the New York Times aspect of things um, in just a second. The the missile theory is sort of one of the three main theories that have been with us from the beginning. I think in part because of the eyewitness anecdotes that you that you just cited. The other ones were were bomb and obviously the one that the FBI and the NTSB ultimately subscribed to, which was a mechanical failure, an explosion of flammable fuel and or air vapors in a fuel tank, most likely from a short circuit. Uh, Before we get to the missile theory, why is the official story that mechanical failure led to uh, this sort of an explosion? What evidence is there to suggest that that's not accurate? Well, you know, in the history of Jet A fuel, which I became sort of standard probably at least 50 years ago, there had never been a midair self-combustion explosion of any major airline, let alone a 747. In the 25 years since, there's not been another one. So it was a like a, a uniquely anomalous event, a uniquely anomalous event when hundreds of people were seeing an object descending towards the plane, uh, when the radar was picking up uh, the uh, of the missile, when video had been made and aired on MSNBC that first night for a couple hours before the FBI seized it. Uh, so all of the evidence, you know, I don't buy into conspiracy theories easily. To me, unless there's an overwhelming logic, unless all evidence points in the same direction, then you just have a bunch of anomalies. Okay, Building 7 falls down on, you know, September 11th. Uh, that's an anomaly. I, you know, you find me a logic for that larger to fit into a bigger picture. But with Spite 800, every single uh, variable pointed in the direction of a uh, missile attack on the uh, aircraft. In terms of the theory that we heard a great deal of at the time, that it was a bomb of some sort, why is there that a faulty theory for the people that buy into that aspect of it? Well, it never made sense in the first place. What happened is on day one and day two, there was real talk of missile. That's all anyone was talking about. And you can go back and check the New mm-hmm. York media at that time. Uh, and then the FBI got involved, and they were steered away. You know, we got a hold of these CIA documents from my 2016 book. I mean, the real legitimate documents through Freedom of Information Act. And uh, the FBI took over the investigation illegally on day one from NTSB, but they did it publicly. What we learned behind the scenes is that the CIA took it over from the FBI on day one, uh, covertly. But what what the CIA document says, you have the analyst uh, bragging about how the head of the FBI missile team 
had said that there were 144 excellent eyewitnesses to a missile attack on the plane, and he bragged how he got them to suppress that information. And what the FBI did then, because they had to come up with some explanation, and there was explosive residue all over the plane from the, uh, from the missile blast, is they came up with a bomb theory because it was less mm. scary mm. than a missile. You know, bombs you could check for. You could have dogs. You could do things. This, By the way, this crash takes place two days before the start of the Atlanta Olympics. So there's mm. high anxiety. I mean, if, if it was a missile attack on the airplane, you'd really have to shut down aviation over the, you know, the East Coast. That would have been disastrous in any which way. And uh, so the bomb thing, and that's what the New York Times runs with. So as late as uh, August 23rd, now we're five weeks after the crash, they run a headline above the fold. Prime evidence found that the uh, explosive device in cabin destroys TW-800, right? And then within a month, they made all of that go away. All of that explosive residue, all of that, all those headlines, you know, all went away. In the meantime, uh, the New York Times of the, there was something like 244 eyewitnesses to uh, a missile strike. We saw one way or another. I mean, not the explosion after the fact, but saw an object hit the plane. The New York Times interviewed exactly zero of those people. Wow. You know, I've talked to 20, 30, 40 of them. I mean, they're out there. They wanted to testify. And some of them become my good friends because they were, you know, they've been frustrated by the way they were treated in the course of this. Uh, And then when you get into it, uh, Frank, you see that the the CIA really took this over. I've been in communication with the head of the FBI missile team, and he was a good guy. uh, And he was silenced. Uh, and the dynamics of behind the scene are uh, could be unraveling soon, thanks to a very, very serious lawsuit that's hmm. been filed in Massachusetts. Well, talking with Jack Cashel, he is the author of the book TWA 800, The Crash, the Cover-Up, and the Conspiracy. In terms of where this missile came from, when I've looked at the missile theory over the years, a lot of the people that put this forward they seem to fall into one of two camps, either that this was due to a Navy missile test that went wrong or a Navy missile test that went awry, or that this could have been some sort of a terrorist missile strike. Does your research lead you to either of those conclusions or something else? Well, you know, my instinct was uh, I wanted it once I, I, it dawned on me that it was a missile strike, I would much have preferred it to be a terrorist missile, right? I would much have preferred to believe that our Navy couldn't have done something that reckless. However, I will tell you this, Frank, I mean, now I will tell you this with 99% confidence that our Navy uh, accidentally shot down the airplane. And do you think that's the reason that the FBI, the CIA, maybe the NTSB then participated in a cover up to get to conceal the true cause of this this missile attack? I think there are two reasons why they uh, for the cover up, the ostensible reason and the reason that would have been shared with those people who had to know. And we're talking about a real small number of people is that this is a top-secret exercise. We cannot let the enemy know that we screwed up, that it, we're vulnerable to these kind of air attacks. And it was just five years later uh, that the thing that the, the Navy was exercising against, that is an aerial attack on New York, came to pass. So it was not an Ill- illegitimate fear. Mm. There, was a, there was a legitimate reason for them to be running these exercises 
in a crowded airspace because that's where the attack would come, as it did on September 11. Um, that's the that's the message that would have gone out to the serious people uh, who who knew but weren't allowed to know. So the key. But there's a different sorry, message too. There's a secondary message, and that was the message coming out of the White House, and that is we've got an election to win in November, sort of like with uh, Benghazi in 2012. Let's just kick this can down the road past November and hope for the best. But then when a new administration comes in uh, five years later and then a new administration comes in after that eight years later and another new administration comes in uh, four years after that, why would a subsequent administration that might have political adversaries in it uh, versus the Clinton administration, why would they not have rushed at the opportunity to reopen the investigation and pin the blame on the folks that were in charge back in 1996? Well, now that's a good question. Uh, I would say that what I've seen over time is that uh, subsequent administrations, especially the ones that are friendly with the ones that preceded it, just as the Bushes and the Clintons and the Obamas have been all friendly with each other. Trump was the wild card. Up until then, uh, you know, they were all cozy. They're all part of the same establishment. Uh, they they weren't going to expose a, a national security disaster on the watch of their predecessor. Uh, and basically, they you know that's the way they play. And okay, I get it, I suppose. And I'm not even sure they knew. I'm not even sure that that say George Bush knew the truth about Flight 800. I doubt if he did. Yeah. And but it leads to things like you know Sandy Berger's pilfering documents during the 9/11 hearings. Some some people in this were playing hardball, and some were playing softball. And uh, unfortunately, the up until Trump, the Republicans tended to play softball. It, you um, you talk about the the handling of this investigation. I think the the public face of this investigation for a lot of people was uh, the former assistant director of the FBI, James Kallstrom. I knew uh, Mr. Kallstrom a little bit uh, before he passed away. He would come on frequently on the radio to talk about uh, all sorts of issues. Uh, you, I guess, give him pretty poor marks for his handling of this investigation. Yeah, you know, and it's odd because, uh, and this is a kind of an oddly funny story, but in 2016, and you, you've you talked to him enough to know that he hated the Clintons. You know, he wasn't like a Clinton. Well, well exactly. That that was my next question. You anticipated my next question. What, you know, almost every conversation that we had, he would he would just kill Hillary Clinton. Why right. would he have saved the bacon of the Clinton administration? Well, that, that question, that bugged me, too. So what I did is I, I, I had a private detective friend of mine, private investigator, get a hold of his address before the election of 2016. I sent him a registered letter, and then I voted absentee. And to avoid all the hubbub of the election, I went to, to France for a few weeks, and I was in Nice on the French Riviera, right? I'm sitting out there one night, and I get a call. And I had not talked to Cashman before. I'd always have ducked my calls, and I'd heard he was a profane bully, and he totally lived up to his reputation. So he starts F-bombing me all over the place. And it's because he calls me, right? And I said... I said, you know, and the point of my letter was, I said, Jim, when when family members see you on TV and they see you bashing Clinton, uh, they're beside themselves. And why not just tell the truth about Flight 800? Right. And then it gets really weird. I, at the time, I, I, you know, I already drank, too. I don't know if that's true. And he was dying of cancer, probably. But uh, he his self uh, his uh, the, the, the state of denial that he was in astonished me. 
at one point he says to me, are you trying to tell me, it's like he never heard this before, that a terrorist missile took down the plane? And I said to him, Jim, I wish I were telling you that. I'd rather tell you that. But after looking this, years, I looked at it. Unfortunately, it's our Navy that shot down the plane. Then he goes totally ballistic on me. F-bomb, 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 F-bomb. And then he says, and this is where it's ironic and funny, he says, you sound just like Pierre effing Salinger. This is JFK's legendary sure. press secretary, former U.S. senator. He says, right after the election in 96, he holds a press conference on the effing French Riviera saying that the Navy shot down our airplane. You know, and I said, I'm sitting there thinking, thank God he doesn't know where I am. <laughs> you know, he's, <laughs> he'd be convinced there was some massive French conspiracy to uh, undo our uh, national security. But the plane was going to Paris, and there were a lot of French people involved, and I've talked to a lot of their parents. And the French media t- took it a whole lot more seriously than our media did, I can tell you that. Well, we're talking so, with uh, Jack Cashel about uh, the uh, incident of TWA Flight 800, what happened there, and what a lot of people have always believed, that, that there was something other than a mechanical failure which led to the explosion of that plane. If you want to learn more about uh, Jack's work, you could go to his website, Cashel.com, that's C-A-S-H-I. LL.com. He's written a lot of books, not only on this subject, but a variety of other subjects as well. Jack, one of the things that's interesting about the TWA Flight 800 situation is that there seems to never have been wide swaths of the population that bought into the official story. Almost from the get-go, folks were skeptical about the official story that the government put out. In your conversations with the family members of the victims, does the skepticism of the victims' families mirror the skepticism of the public at large, or are they a little more willing or a little less willing to accept the government's official story? You know, I would say this. I haven't talked to all the family members. The ones I talk to are the ones who are skeptical of the government's uh, theory and are very skeptical and angry still. Uh, There are a lot of people who bought it. You know, I don't know what the psychology is. If you lose a loved one, the last thing you want to do is fight with your government. But I will tell you this, the people who are most skeptical uh, are the aviators, uh, the pilots, the engineers, the mechanics. And I've talked to, I I talk to TWA groups all the time, retired TWA people. I have not met the TWA person who buys the government theory. Hmm. When they saw, when anyone in the aviation or engineering business or military saw the CIA's animated uh, recreation of of their fuel tank explosion thesis, they laughed. They thought it was ludicrous because what you see in the animation is that the plane blows up spontaneously, breaks in half, the nose falls off, and then the the plane somehow shoots up 3,500 feet without a nose. You know, when in fact, you know, all the weight would have, you know, fallen to the tail and and after maybe like a, a brief upsurge, it would have you know, uh, falling like a, a leaf in, uh, you know, in October into the ground. Um, they said it was ludicrous. You could talk to 100 engineers. I've, I've heard from literally scores of people from Boeing. I've talked to literally hundreds of, uh, of uh, airline pilots, military people, and no one buys it. No one. There's a few people who have to put a front on and, you know, play, you know, I don't know, you never know, it could be blah, blah, blah. 
but no one buys them. There was a documentary about uh, nine years ago called TWA Flight 800, and the the gist of that documentary was similar to what you're saying, that this was a missile strike that had downed the airliner. Uh, the person that, uh, that made that, I think, was actually a physicist, clearly a, a guy that knows a thing or two about uh, aeronautics, not some uh, wide-eyed optimist who is naive to these kinds of things. Did you happen to see that documentary and what was your take on the conclusions they came to in it? Yes, I did. I was not involved in it, but I know the, uh, the producers. Uh, one was Tom Stalkup, the physicist in question, who's been working on this from day one. I mean, he was in it in on the years before I got involved. And the other one is Christina Borgeson, who is the producer at CBS, who lost her job uh, at CBS uh, because she uh, tried to get this story on the air years ago. I mean, like mm. the, the year after it happened. And uh, it's an excellent documentary. It's called, I believe it's called TWA Flight 800. Tom Stalkup, who is a really diligent, brilliant, no-nonsense, apolitical guy, has been working on this through the Freedom of Information Act. And um, he has a, uh, a lawsuit out now that they launched this summer with the family members uh, that is shockingly precise and sophisticated in its accusations against the uh, uh, essentially against the, uh, the the various parties involved, which includes Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, as well as you know the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy. And he doesn't waste any time; he gets right into it. The central argument is this: He goes, "Quote: After the incident, the federal government released a false report contending that the explosion was the result of an electrical fire in the airplane center." And then he goes on to say the real cause, the suit, the suit uh, he says in the suit, was, quote, an errant United States missile fired at aerial target drones mm-hmm. flying nearby. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not in communication with Slocka, but his work has been really impressive, uh, and I totally agree with him. Obviously, we're going to see where that, uh, where that lawsuit goes. From your perspective, what would you like to see happen? Would you like to see this investigation be reopened? You know, I would like to see the truth come out. Uh, if they reopen this investigation seriously, they could have it resolved in a month. Mm. I mean, all the information, all the evidence points in one direction. They know that. And, uh, you know, the, the, they spent four years uh, previously, uh, the NTSB did, to come up with just some plausible scenario. And Salkov, who was the young, he was a graduate student at the time. And the video is available. Those who want to see the NTSB hearing, he's sitting out in the back, and it's kind of funny in a way. But he has uh, the the guy, uh, the NTSB uh, representative, is talking about what the eyewitnesses saw and how they were all confused, et cetera. And then you hear someone in the back yell out, "Ask the eyewitnesses!" <laughs> you know, uh, none of the eyewitnesses, and these include. Military pilots, uh, you know, fishermen, uh, pilots of other airplanes, uh, passengers on other airplanes, was allowed to testify. Wow! Uh, and that tells you just about all you need to know. Last question, and then I'll I'll let you get to bed. And uh, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. We've been talking to Jack Cashill. He has two books on the uh, TWA Flight 800 incident. One is called First Strike, and the sequel to that, which uh, delves even further down this rabbit hole, is called TWA 800 Crash Cover Up Conspiracy. Whenever you know how cynical I think, Jack, of uh, that talk radio listeners can be, and yes. New York. 
York talk radio listeners take that to a whole new level. And I know there are going to be folks calling in seconds and emailing me for days questioning your motives, essentially saying, well, look, there's a lot of money to be made if you write books and you make documentaries and you go on podcasts and radio shows saying that the official story is flawed. What do you say to those folks, Jack, who may be saying that you're trying to push an alternative narrative so that you could be the beneficiary of increased publicity or increased book sales or anything like that? Well, first of all, I used to work in advertising. Uh, that's where the money was <laughs> in, my, in my current occupation. No, I also went to high school in New York City. I grew up in the area. I know those people well. I would say to them this, go out to Suffolk County and talk to anyone, right? Especially talk to the uh, Suffolk County Police, the Suffolk County Marine Patrol. Those were the only straight shooters involved in this whole investigation. The people who are listening on Long Island know exactly what I'm talking about. You're not going to find many people on Long Island saying, Oh, Jack, what's he just making this stuff up? They know. They've heard the story from their own. They know the eyewitnesses. They've talked to people who've seen this and been involved and had their, you know, all these mysterious things happening around them. They're the best people of all to talk to. Jack, it is a real treat to talk with you. I hope we can do this again soon. Hey, Frank, uh, thanks for giving me the time. It's uh, it's a real treat. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, agree, disagree, further questions, whatever the case may be, uh, let us have it. 800-848-9222. This is 800-848-9222. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 